security peeps. We are live with another edition of Breaking into Cybersecurity CISO Thursdays. Hi, everybody. I am Renee Small, cybersecurity super recruiter, helping awesome leaders hire great talent. And the crew is here. Um, let's go around. Let's start off with the James Azar. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Great to see y'all. I've missed doing this, right? Like ever since baby's been, right? Like he's just been all ever so consuming. I haven't had time. Babies take you. precedent, man. That's awesome, awesome, awesome. But we did miss you. I've missed we you guys. I've so. missed you. Chris Folon. Howdy, everyone. Cybersecurity professional, career coach, and I have the distinguished honor to introduce Helen Patent, um, great CISO and amazing person. Welcome, Helen. Thanks for having me. I don't know what I meant to say to that, Chris. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are super excited to have you here. Before we even get started, we want everyone to subscribe. I see some of our regulars are here. Zoe says hi. Hey, Zoe, tell us how that job is going. Long time no see. Yeah, we haven't seen you either. You've been working. Sterling Richard says, woohoo, CISO Thursdays. We are excited and we missed you, James. Thank you, sir. It's true. Hey, hey to the crew. Hey, hey, Dutch. We got to bring you back. We missed you, James Thank Azar. You. Thank you. <laughs> Feel the love. I've got goosebumps everywhere. Yes, you have been missed. So before we get started, folks, everybody, please um, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We have been growing that channel. We definitely want people to subscribe. We also want you to subscribe to all of our channels outside on um, we are the, our rest, the rest of our channels, Chris. On LinkedIn. <laughs> LinkedIn, YouTube, listening platform. Okay, awesome. Now, Will says, hey, awesome peeps. Hey, Will. Helen has, a, well, not only is she an, uh, an amazing CISO and everything else, but she just wrote this book and I cannot wait to hear more about it. So Helen, mm. can you jump in, tell us what made, tell, talk to us about the book. I, I was reading some of the, some of the um, LinkedIn info that I think is going to be available on Amazon and it's available now, right? The download today. is available now. Today. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Today. Awesome, it's awesome, awesome. So is today, is today the inaugural day? Yeah, for the for the book itself, yeah. So it's been out on um, Kindle for a week or two already. But, yeah, the book, the book gets shipped today. So I'm super excited about it. That is so exciting. Yeah. Um, so tell us more. Tell us about the book. What made you um, write it? This is, this is the audience for that book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So there are three parts to this book. Uh, there is getting into cybersecurity. There is how to live successfully in cybersecurity. And then there is also how to lead in cybersecurity. So if you're a new manager or a new, new CISO or that kind of thing. So the reason I wrote the book was um, when I was the CISO at Ohio State in particular, I'd have a lot of people reach out to me and they'd say, Helen, let, can you let, I want to buy you coffee and I want to pick your brain about a thing. And the thing is, how do I get into security? Should I have a certification? How do I, what do I, how do I decide what to do? Or 
It was, I've got this really bad case of imposter syndrome. How do I live with this while I'm in security? Or I'm a minority. How do I successfully navigate this whole thing or whatever? And it turned out um, I wasn't sleeping any because I was drinking too much coffee. And the questions that people ask were often similar. So I decided to write this book because um, I needed to be able to mentor at scale. And I can't do that by meeting people one-on-one -on -one with coffee. So some of the book is for people who have questions, but the other audience for the book is actually for people like me who are mentors who want to be able to share information but haven't had a resource to do it. So trying to, trying to make it available as broadly as possible with the goal of getting more people into cybersecurity because hell knows we need it, right? So, yeah, that's why I did it. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for for doing it. And we, I mean, your it sounds like your process for writing the book was very similar to why we started the podcast that many years ago and went into the book as well. Um, but I know part of your your process was re reaching out to your network and working yeah. with them. Um, tell us about how you in integrated the community into your writing process. Yeah, it's interesting. So one of the themes of the book, I think whether you're trying to get into security or if you're trying to be good at security while you're there, I don't think you can do it on your own. I do think there is a power of network and there is a power of being part of a community. And so that's one of the themes that runs through pretty much every question that I answer in the book. Um, so yeah, when I was writing the book, I used that same network. So there were some folks that I already knew who were already authors of cybersecurity things like you, Chris, and others. And so some of my questions were, how, well, how do I even do this? <laughs> Those kinds of questions. But throughout my career, I've had these people around me who've known about security stuff more than I have. So I drafted up what I thought the answers to the questions were and then I sent some of those questions off to my community and say what would you add to this or where did I get this wrong or where am I missing some important information that really should be included and I got that feedback into the book as well so thank you to everybody who was part of the community to help me get it out there because I needed everyone's input for sure. Helen, what would you say are some of the, I know you said a lot of the questions were, you know, ones that kept coming up over and over. Hmm. What were some of the top, like the top ones, the top one or two questions that you kept getting again and again, which probably aligns to what we get, but yeah. I'm just curious. For people who are getting into, who want to get into cybersecurity, I, especially as a CISO at a higher ed institution, I get a lot of questions around, do I need a degree? If I get a degree, what kind of degree do I need to get? Um, do I need a certification? If, if I do need a certification, what should I go after? How do I get a certification if I need to have work experience in order to get the cert, but I need the cert in order to get the job? You know, the, the chicken and egg kind of question. So a lot of that happened. Um, for people who are already in security, a lot of questions come up like, I'm a single contributor now. I'm ready for my next step. I don't know if the next step should be management of a team or whether I should go deep and be a SME, a subject matter expert. Um, so those kinds of questions often came up. And certainly this question of how do I stay on top of all the changes that are happening in cybersecurity all the time? And that's a common one 
for entry level people, for mid career people, for senior leaders, is how how do you stay on top of all this stuff? Because there's so much information and technology's changing so fast. So how do you stay on top of it? Really common questions for everyone. It's good to know. It's definitely mm. what we tend to get often as well. Mm. And then as as um as a CISO, now you've transitioned, you've transitioned across several different spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, what consistent themes have you seen that someone can beef up in their career that they can transition across any sector, any industry um, yep. as they look to grow? Yeah, so one of the things I mentioned in the book is a lot of the questions I get when I'm mentoring aren't about technology questions. And maybe that's because I'm not a deep technologist, I don't know. But typically the questions I get are more about human interaction, about how do you work with people? How do you manage your manager? How do you engage your stakeholders? Those kinds of questions. And so thematically, one of the things that I that that flows throughout the whole book are things like knowing understanding knowing why you think security is a good thing, knowing yourself, like what, what's your reason for wanting to be in security? What's your reason for wanting to lead a team? What's your reason for doing this kind of security that you're doing today versus any other kind of security? Because we all know security isn't one thing. So how do you decide whether you're going to be a pen tester or a hacker or a GRC person or a CISO or an, or an architect or whatever knowing your personal why, and, and by that I mean, what do you value about security? Um, what kind of company do you like to work for? A big company that's really international and broad or maybe a startup. Um, are you an introvert or an extrovert? You know, what is, what is, who are you? And how do you think security works for you and how do you think you can work for security and then being able to communicate that so it's not just about writing a job description and it's not just about writing um, maybe a security white paper or something like that it's also about being able to talk to people who aren't necessarily already in security about why you why you care Um, so yeah being able to communicate and understanding yourself are real themes through the whole thing. Dutch had a question. He said, Helen, conversely, are there any less frequent questions that you got when you where you said, aha, never thought about it from that point of view? Thanks for asking a tricky question, Dutch. I've never had that question before. Um, there were a few, there are, there are always a few that come up. Um, I but they re- they tend to be very specific to an individual like i had a i had someone reach out to me this week who said they're looking to get into security which is great um they already work in it they've got like 10 years of it experience i'm like awesome this you're you know you're already a step ahead and then they said yeah but we're moving and we're moving to a place that doesn't have really great internet access so i can't work from home and I'm moving to a part of the country, like they're not moving to Silicon Valley where they can just, you know, you throw a stone out your window and you hit a cybersecurity company or a cyber job, right? They're moving to a part of the the country that doesn't have a lot of companies in it. And he's like, how do I get into security? And I was like, 
uh, move, like get satellite internet access. Like I'm not, I'm not quite, you know, so a lot of the questions I get are really very, that, that I wouldn't have thought of before are really pretty niche. Um, occasionally I'll get someone who's like, they're a college student, they want to do a cybersecurity startup and they haven't even worked in technology before. Like some of it, they completely come out of left field. But most of the time, the questions are ones I could actually predict and I've probably heard before. It's a great question though, Dutch. Definitely. Because I can imagine that they, some of the ones that you, what you just described, some left fielders, but over and over, I mean, Chris and I, and the reason why we wrote our book, which is the reason why you wrote your book, <laughs> is because we kept getting, and the book and the podcast, is because we kept getting the same questions over, That's right. and, over and over again. Right. Yeah. And you, you've done cybersecurity in the educational field. What's your view for trying to um, drive cybersecurity awareness and curriculum down to the K-12 level? Yeah, it's a really good question, Chris. K-12 is an interesting space. There's an organization called Code.org. If you haven't checked out Code.org, go take a look. They don't do cybersecurity specifically, but they're doing they do research and training and curricula for, for computer science in the K through 12 section. One of the research studies they did said in the United States, on average, only 42% of high schools offer at least one computer science class in their curriculum, right? So that means that less than half of our students get one computer class if they're lucky, right? Now, there are certainly extremes on either end. They get absolutely nothing or they're, you know, they're starting middle school and they're doing robotics or whatever. But there, is, there isn't actually a lot of opportunity within the formal K through 12 curriculum to start thinking about cybersecurity, let alone computer science or computing in general. So I think there's a long way to go. Um, one of the states that's actually doing really interesting things from a policy perspective is Arkansas, believe it or not. Like when you think cyber, you don't tend to think Arkansas and apologies to anybody who's listening who's from Arkansas, but that they have invested at the state level in education around computer science and also um, cybersecurity as well. Um, right, so but I that, think, but, but for Arkansas, Helen, the key driver for their cyber development was Walmart. That's right. Uh, Walmart Technology came in and said, we can't get anyone to want to move to Arkansas to work for us. Yes. And um, again, no offense. This is no reflection on the great state of Arkansas. All right. Let's just put it right there. Um, we've got 50 awesome states. But uh, that was a private public partnership. That was purely Walmart going and saying, all right, we're going to put in a bunch of money into the school system and start grooming that talent from a very young right. age. And they're offering internships at Walmart Tech, mm -hmm. uh, everything from engineering to architecture to security mm -hmm. to coding to development to um, cloud, you name it. Yeah. Um, but I think that's that's the one thing that's lacking everywhere else is you don't have that private-public partnership. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that that's kind of missing where a corporation comes in mm -hmm. with, you know, billions of dollars and goes – all right, we're going to do X. And the other aspect that Walmart did that I think is very, very underrated and not a lot of people talk about it is they're actually grooming the teachers to come in and teach. 
So yeah. they've volunteered some of their own internal staff to go in and teach these classes. Because Chris, mm-hmm. you brought up a magnificent point. You're like, why isn't this getting to K-12? Find an IT guy who wants to go make an, a, a teacher salary teaching uh, coding. When in today's marketplace, you're making mid six figures in any tech job, you're going to go be a school teacher for 60 grand a year and deal with other people's kids. Where's that incentive? You have a two month old, James. Don't throw shade at me. I've got a two month old and a 16 year old. And when I see my (laughs) you get her for eight hours a day. (laughs) Better you than me. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. We've got teachers who aren't trained to teach and we've got people who once they get trained realize they can make money in the private sector and off they go and do it. So that's a big that's a big problem for K-12. So James brings up a really important point. I think there are there is definitely a role to play for for private sector companies to explicitly invest in K through 12, to explicitly invest in HBCUs at the college level, for example, and other, you know, underserved groups. You don't need to be investing in Ivies. They can handle themselves, right? Think about the other places where you can invest. Um, I am interested to see, though, there's there's stuff coming out of the federal government right now as part of COVID relief, but also the infrastructure bill that is earmarked for education, specifically for cybersecurity both in terms of shoring up schools so that they don't keep getting whacked with ransomware, but also in terms of education. So I think there are some, some lights at the end of the tunnel. Money that's, I, was, I was reading a report uh, that uh, Pat um, uh, shared a little bit ago, and it was showing how the education money that was going through uh, for COVID, and I'm going to do COVID relief, <laughs> was being used for non-COVID things, for example. Air quotes, air quote, COVID, closed air quote. Yeah, (laughs) Um, for for more computer labs, um, for more, um, uh, uh, you know, being able to maybe try to uh, create a new standard for teachers to come in Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. trying to identify people who could teach coding and and, or uh, can teach security or, you know, just basic computer science. Right. Right. there's a significant lack in that and all of that's kind of been given away to the third party place which is why you're seeing you know like in some areas um i remember i was having a conversation with congressman kahana ro kahana out of silicon valley a while about a year right before covid and he you know he's like i don't have to worry about kids learning how to code in my district every single 12 year old in our district knows how to code they're developing apps But you go you you go an hour north of his district to a different district, and twelve year olds there barely have high speed internet. Right. Yeah. So some of the other things that I'm seeing is taking it from the other approach and doing more workforce development programs where you're now aiming to reskill and upgrade the skills of the community for those that have passed K-12 that maybe didn't go to university. And I've seen programs out of Michigan. Um, Recently, NSA did a grant with with a university in Florida to kind of create those workforce development programs. Have, Have you seen any progress in those areas? Yeah, I have actually. There, there is a number of, of similar programs that are happening here in Ohio. We've got similar things going on too. Um, it's, it's, 
really interesting to me to see it. Um, people are starting to recognize that not only is technology a core skill these days, but cybersecurity is a core skill and being able to integrate those two things together. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of interest from state and local governments to foster that kind of investment. And I think that's really important. Um, and it really does have to be graduated. So if I take Ohio, which is where I'm sitting right now, if I take Ohio as an example, there are counties within Ohio that just don't have broadband. So the state has a program in place to extend internet access, whether that's through broadband or other means, to those counties. But now you've got people, okay, they've got internet access, but what do they do with it? So now we've got to have training and workforce development programs in those counties that help them learn how to exist in a digital economy. And hopefully part of that curriculum includes how to be secure in a digital economy as well. And that I think will help us ultimately with this larger goal that we have of bringing people to work in cybersecurity, because there is a really untapped resource going on in these places that aren't Silicon Valley or the DC Beltway or, you know, some of the other places where we think about cyber and technology as being hubs. Well, the last two years have shown us that the flexibility of organizations to adapt to a moving workforce is significant. I mean, um, Renee, as a recruiter, she sees that all the time where uh, people who she's trying to get into key roles are like, well, if do I have to show up to an office? Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'm not interested. Like, I don't even want to take the time to interview. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Do I have to live in Silicon Valley? Well, I'm not doing that. Right. right. I'm, I want to live in, in, in somewhere in Iowa or Ohio or um, Texas or, or I want to go live somewhere where my kids could have a quality of life. That's different from this urban rat race, sit in traffic, yeah. right? Like honking horns. Like people don't want that anymore. No, and, and, and I don't think they ever did, but well, they had to have it. They had, right, to they had to have it, but it's, it's really interesting because if you look at like just strategically, like how over the last years, if you look at how the, if you look at a population map of, of America and you go back to the early 1900s, right? And you start to watch how rural communities, people in rural parts of the country started moving to big cities, right? New York, San Francisco, LA, Chicago, Dallas, Houston, Atlanta, uh, Miami, right? Um, et cetera. And then you watch the last 20 years go from like 1980 to about 2018. You see that move go it's it's one direction everything is moving towards big cities and these big suburban areas mm -hmm. and now if you go 2020 2021 and you watch that map it's completely backwards right people are moving away from the cities they're going back to their small town they grew up in with their now young kids and going like yeah we can work from anywhere and we can have a better balance mm -hmm. but you know this kind of brings out a very interesting thing and i don't know if you've seen this helen um one password did a survey that they put out um, a few days ago, and I actually covered it on the show yesterday and again today, where 80% of people are burnt out from working from home. And that's leading to security concerns because 84% of them are liable to make security mistakes. We're not talking about security people here. We're not talking about people trying to break into security, um, you know, but that's, to me, that's like, yeah, like that number's mind-boggling. Yeah, 
It's um, interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, from a security defense perspective, we've sort of gone insider threats a thing, right? Insider threats a thing. And then you go, okay, now we've got 80% of our workforce working from home where we can't physically control them with weird stuff on their own personal networks that are commingled with our corporate assets. And uh, well, what kind of signals are we getting from our UEBA solutions to be able to identify those folks? And how do we do that and still maintain privacy concerns and things of that nature? It's, it's, yeah, it's a brave new world when it comes to insider threat from that perspective, that's for sure. I'm less concerned about insider threat. I'm more concerned with the fact that this burnout rate is going to end up being one of the uh, critical aspects of why we can't keep people in roles for very long mm -hmm. because the work-life balance just doesn't exist anymore. If you think of like work calls or, you know, if you go talk to any CISO, um, you know, talking to a peer of mine last night over dinner, you know, we were, we were comparing calendars for a speaking engagement we're, we're supposed to do next week. And he's, I was like, well, how many meetings are you moving? And he's like, well, I got to move four. And I said, how many are you moving? Well, I've got, I'm triple booked for like all these hours, right? So I've got to move seven. And you're like, when do you eat in all of this? And he goes, this one meeting, I can be off camera and I'll typically mute myself, <laughs> eat something while everyone's talking. And if they call on me while I'm chewing, I just say I couldn't hit the mute button. That balance is gone. And my fear is because of that, there's going to be people that are going to look at their parents who do this kind of like how our parents looked at our grandparents who maybe did manual labor, right? Worked in factory assembly lines and manufacturing and said, I don't want to do that. They're tired. They're exhausted. They come home. They're like burnt out from doing the same job over and over again. Could our kids be looking at us today and going like, well, yeah, you're working from home, but look at you. You're burnt out. You're, you're not happy. You're in the computer on conference calls all day long. You, you know, you barely get off your chair, you know, going to the bathroom is like, okay, can I, can I get to <laughs> time between my calls? Um, and I think that's a serious conversation to be had because I look at potential people who want to break into the industry in that K-12 arena and they go, huh, I don't know that I want to do tech. Yeah. couple comments. Um, We've got yeah, there were some points that I wanted to make too. Um, AWS is another organization that I know partner with. Um, it looks like Helen froze on us, so she is coming back. I'm and... back. Sorry, internet <laughs> dropped out again. Talk about working from home and the dangers of it. Here I am. Right. <laughs> I just wanted to say that um, when you talked about, when James talked about um, companies like Walmart in Arkansas, I know AWS when they, or when Amazon showed up in the, it, well, AWS was already working with um, the government in Virginia, but I know when Amazon, one of the Amazon headquarters came to the Northern Virginia area, the public-private partnership was a piece of um, them coming into the area and working with K-12. So you do have folks that are cloud professionals from AWS coming in and working with some of the high school students in some of these um I don't know. I don't. I don't know how much of it is. It is across all the high schools, but I definitely know one of the high schools that I partner with, which is called um, Marshall High School. They have a cyber academy, and the kids learn from the AWS um, professionals. So that's another space that's also 
um, included with public private, which to James's point is perfect is, you know, I think that's how it should be just across the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then additionally, another point that James made when it came to um, when it comes to people, the work from home part, I mean, I literally just what James just said was a conversation I had twenty like the reason why I was late <laughs> because I was having that exact conversation. Person's like, hey, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not moving, or I'm not, you know, I'm not doing this. If they can't confirm that this is this gonna be 100 percent remote or it's gonna be this is it, this is what it is, I'm not interested. And um it's I was talking to a friend earlier today when it comes to especially in this current market that is wild right now um that candidates are have the the upper hand and candidates can say this is what I'm doing this is what I'm not doing James and some organizations because of this burnout and because of the great resignation and all that they have put things in place where it's just like okay we understand the mental health component we understand the burnout we don't want you know burnout comes with every like it it only um it, it only becomes more negative, especially from a company perspective, too. You're just prone to making mistakes. You have burn. I mean, it's just it, it's not good on any level. So they're working with, you know, some some um, I remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, the emails were flying around all hours of the night. And then companies were like, OK, no, working hours are, you know, core hours are from this time to this time. At that point, you know, if you want to respond to an email, that's on you. But don't feel obligated to have to do so. So couple comments, some other comments from the um, from the chat here. So James, when James talking about his research, wouldn't that be research in liberal arts? Really? We're going to go into liberal arts now? <laughs> I've started Helen, Helen James talks about the liberal arts degree. No more degree. student loans for liberal arts degrees. No more. I don't want that freaking debt on my economy, all right? You want to do liberal arts, do that on your own goddamn time, but we shouldn't have to underwrite bad degrees. Oh my God. It's always a fun time here with James and liberal arts. James, we missed you so much last week. It was so perfect for you to have like the counterpoint. But anyway, um, whole cyber human initiative says, I think the working from home also that there are some trying to work two jobs at once to have the feeling that they are off are in the office with room for error. That's like total room for error. Um, and then Dutch, really good point here. James, that's, that is interesting. Burnout via work from home. I would ask perhaps the root cause is something deeper in the same way that digital transformation isn't just digitizing your old workflow products and strategies working in 22 and beyond shouldn't just be, quote, do the same things in your house. We need to rethink how we work, how we engage and how we connect. That is, I, why, that is why the title of my book is The Mar and Sisso. And I talk exactly about that piece right there. Right. You've got to eliminate the nine to five work hours because that's just not realistic for someone who's working from home. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you something like I like working from home. I would like to go to the office once or twice a week for non-peak hours, right? Like if someone said, be at the office at eight o'clock, I'm probably going to blow them off in Zoom, right? But if someone said, hey, show up at 1030, be done by two o'clock. I live in Atlanta. Traffic here is back to being what it was pre It's actually worse because we've got too. like California people that moved here. And like <laughs> California people don't know how to drive. Like there's sus- something systematically and like, I don't know if it's the California water or weather. Like, but California people do not know how to drive. 
when we were in Florida, we would say that all the time when the snowbirds came in, because they would make a left-hand turn from a right lane across four different lanes. I mean, that's just yeah. driving 101. That's just like the, you're in the South. Like, the speed limit of 55 miles an hour does not exist here. Like, 55 miles an hour is the speed limit in a neighborhood, right? You're on the highway, we're going 80, right? Like, that's the minimum speed limit. Like, I will fly by you in your little Tesla. If you're driving a Tesla at 55 miles an hour, give the car back to Elon Musk. That's not why he made it. Go get a Toyota Corolla hybrid, all right? I think Dutch's point about the, um, and I know we were all nodding like, yes, especially when he said doing the same, you know, this do the same thing in your house, especially I think for non-tech workers, it was very, very difficult. Like I spoke to some of my friends and um, that have, that were not accustomed to working from home. Like I I think a lot of us in tech have had the luxury to be remote sometimes, you know, so we kind of know how to do it or may have known how to do it a little bit more or had a little bit more experience. But some of these folks who have never really worked from home, they were freaking out because they felt like they had to be sitting at their computer, like somebody's monitoring every, (laughs) you know, every click. And if you're in your, if you're in the office, you, you get up, you have coffee, you go hang out at the water cooler, whatever, you know, you do different things. You're moving around. You're not just sitting at your laptop all day long. Um, and it is a bit of a mind shift. And I think especially, especially when you go like Gen X, when you're going to the, the older generations that are definitely like get to the office at eight o'clock and work until five, that, that space, it was very, very, um, different. So I wonder, I'm, I'm curious about the, the range and the job. And the folks in the different jobs. So so let me get to this point, though, real quick, because I was trying to make it and then I got distracted. You guys took me down the Tesla and liberal arts road. All right. So so (laughs) we took you there. (laughs) It's your fault, Renee. All right. It's all you. I blame you for everything. (laughs) No, um, there's there's one piece. I think there's one aspect of the work life balance that goes along the lines of most people that work from home are also now, their spouses are also working from home. And so they're splitting kid duty, right? And splitting kid duty is someone's going to take the kids to school one morning and someone's going to go pick them up. And so someone's going to start working early and finish early and someone's going to need to start working later and finish later. And and bosses don't understand that, right? Managers, a lot of managers haven't yet adopted that kind of like, all right, we're not going to do an 8 a.m. stand-up call because that may not be very convenient for everyone. We should probably do it around 10 a.m. because that makes more sense because kids are in school, people are back home, you know, whatever the the case may be. Life's a little bit slower between, you know, 8 a.m. to 2 2 p.m. But you would think that they, at this point, right, because at 8 o'clock in the morning, forget it, you're going to have Renee and three kids behind you, right? (laughs) Like, you would think that each, that managers would have figured that out. But but you're you're but you're talking about corporate culture, right? And it's one it's one of the things I talk about in the book, which is like you know kind of like the idea of like that security culture that is embedded in the DNA of an organization to create a modern workspace. Like you've a CISO is no longer the basement hiding behind eighteen you know inch walls somewhere like that's just not the role of the CISO anymore a CISO today is a modern workplace leader 
And you're starting to see that in financial organizations really take place. Um, but you've got to be able to look at how do I one secure my entire enterprise and still allow it. And a, a lot of, you know, security professionals are waiting kind of for HR to come up with these solutions, but we've got them. We've done them. Uh, we've been doing them for years. Um, and, and everyone's kind of looked at, 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 at security and kind of put us in the little kids table, but we're, we're not there anymore. I think we're very, we're very, uh, um, we're, ve- we're very much able to build that new work-life balance. And, and technology as a whole, like even out you know, if you take, if you step out of security, I think just tech in general or knowledge workers, but definitely tech workers, because I was fighting this battle for years from a recruiting perspective. Like if they don't, if you don't feel like you need to press a button somewhere and I get, I get that there's company culture and all of that and hybrid is fantastic, but people would say it all the time. Like, especially in the DC Metro area where commutes could be easily two hours each way. It's like, Chris knows, you know, sitting in traffic, like, does this make any kind of sense? And you would get so much pushback. And there were there, I remember the the CISO I worked with at the time, he was big on, this was what, six, seven years ago, he's talking about results oriented work environment. There's a book called Roe. And it talks about that results oriented work, like nine to five doesn't work for everybody, you know, and yes, the flex hours too, but this whole structure um, wasn't even really working and wasn't pro- super productive with people in the office anyway. So bringing it out of the office is a whole different ballgame. So more comments here. Um, as a person that worked for home, from home for 10 plus years, work-life balance is about setting and sticking to boundaries with yourself, your employer, and your family or um, significant other or roommates. It's not all on the employer. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I agree. And I think that I just think that getting in a little bit in the mindset of some folks that had never, ever worked from home, they thought, because if you don't know, what do you know? You think you have to sit at your laptop all day and like have a headache and you can't go to the bathroom and your meetings are book solid. And because if you're not doing something on your laptop, you're not working or you're not productive, whatever it is. But um, yeah, I agree. I've been working from home since full time since um, 24. 14, 15, something like that. So for me, it was like, only difference was now the kids were here. <laughs> the kids were here. That was the difference. But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely different. And people, you saw like the COVID weight. I gained it too. Um, you know, because you're sitting, you didn't get up and move around like you typically would. And even though I worked from home all those years, I always made a habit to go to, you know, events and industry things. Like I was always out like in the evenings and during the day. So lunch meetings and breakfasts and things like that. So that you're, you're around your physical um, or getting some physical activity versus like literally just sitting at home. So, okay, more comments. A whole cyber human initiative says, I don't know that most are burning out based on work. I think they still have the in-office nine to five mindset and feel obligated to work nonstop but we know your flow may be less. Um, one solution for remote burnout, if you finish your work in two hours, upskill. Another would be teach those kids geek. <laughs> um, hybrid is not new. You nailed it on companies and most have adopted a very nice family environment and understand however, some however, just can't adopt kids in the background. Hey, it is what it is. If you don't want my kids, you don't want me. <laughs> 
FedRAMP and DOD work is exactly like what you said, Renee. I know one person who has to make schedules when they go to the bathroom written. Oh, my God. Written into it. Wow. That's pretty horrible. You have to write down that you're going to the bathroom? They have to leave the skiff. Wow. That's pretty bad. Okay. Dutch had a couple of great comments. Um, Dutch says, well, Chris said he took, he takes his 8 a.m. Uh, calls in the car line. <laughs> The little guy in the oh, again, little guy in the background. Is that me bringing? Um, okay, so Dutch says even using the term work-life balance is a problem. Balance, the way Americans use that term, is like a weight scale, i.e., binary. It's not balance; it's harmony, and it is flow. First level managers need to a deep rethink on how they can provide value to the employees in their care, coaching, mentoring, resourcing. Resourcing and displaying EQ. This is how we break away from the 40-hour work week as if we're building Model T cars. Yeah, I'm pretty surprised. I don't know why I'm always surprised, but I'm 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 just surprised at this point with with families, with so much that's happened over the last two years. You would think that there would be so much flexibility. To so James's point, okay, our stand-up meetings at 10. You know, you have something going on at you know two o'clock. Like every time somebody puts a three o'clock or a three thirty meeting, I'm like. I don't three to four thirty picking up kids doing whatever. I'll talk to you. Or right five o'clock on a Friday. Yeah, good luck with that. I will decline <laughs> five o'clock on a Friday every time. Good, good luck with that. But right? it's it's interesting that they in this one, whoo, put in the schedule, the bathrooms written on the schedule. I yeah, but that but but again, that's Fed Ramp and DOD work, and you know what that's you're different. up for. That's different. That's when true. you do that kind that's of work, you're, you're accessing classified information. There's yeah. there's I mean that's not reality, right? I mean if if there's a private organization that's making people put in like a bathroom break in the on their calendar, like I seriously think like someone should like absolutely sue that org for 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 that kind of management style, like. The CEO and everyone with a C level title should be fired immediately for even adhering yeah, to it's ridiculous. I love Dutch's comment um, about. Sorry. Go ahead, James. No, no, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I love Dutch's comment about like comparing it to digital transformation because I think a lot of companies really just did do that. Um, when COVID hit, they lifted and shifted their work culture and just put it at home and expected everyone at home to adjust to their home life, the work culture. And that's not going to happen. People might do it for a couple of months, but after that, you're going to realize that they have more flexibility outside uh, with other companies than trying to stay with that monolithic um, nine to five culture. And the thing is, the candidates have the upper hand right now. I am witnessing it firsthand. And if a company, I don't know how, I mean, I got some, somebody reached out to me and was like, we're in desperate, urgent need. I'm like, well, flex your requirements. You know, people want to stay, they, not even that they want to, they're demanding for this, this particular population of folks with this particular skill set is saying, I'm going to be 100% remote or a little bit, you know, like remote with a little bit of coming in occasionally travel, et cetera. You're in desperate need. It's been open for six months because you're trying to get somebody to come in office. It's not going to happen. And, you know, if you do get somebody, I don't know if that person, you know, what the story is. But again, it just boggles my mind that there's, it just seems to be this 
weird, like, okay, we're not going to flex. We're going to wait. I think there's, there's companies out there, Renee, that are kind of thinking things are going to go back to people coming in. And there are companies, by the way, like the reason there's still two hour traffic in DC isn't because everyone's rushing to the Capitol to do work, right? <laughs> it's because there are companies who've told their employees, now you've got to be back in there 40 hours a week. Part of it is also because the federal government doesn't allow for flex work, right? Yes, they do. Well, so for some roles, not a lot, okay. right? And there's still, there's still an aspect of you can't really work remote on specific things, okay? right? The other aspect is there are other private organizations who don't have the digital capacity to support a work from home type of organization. So they're getting people to show up and work from the office as well. Um, and once like, here's the thing, once kids went back to school and schools were back and open, yeah. there was no way companies were going to stay in that full 100% remote. Right. Like there, there was some CEO in there that says, well, my kids are back in school, so we should probably all get back into the office. Um, and, and they started doing just that. They started requiring people to show up to the office. It may not be an eight hour day because I'll tell you something, you drive at 2 PM anywhere now and there's traffic, right? Because there are people who are now leaving at 2 PM. Um, but th th there's also the aspect of there's more cars on road and there's also more traffic because the people who are home still need to get stuff. And that stuff can only come through a car <laughs> and the car has to be on the road with someone driving it. Right? Like, it's it's there's no there's no like solution to solve some of these issues because it's it's a domino effect right it's 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 kind of like a house of cards um self driving teslas i'm sorry self driving teslas i can't listen i, I just want to drone why can't a drone go pick up my chinese takeout and bring it to me in 5 minutes i don't under why is a human doing that it's coming it's coming. Uh, I saw Walmart um, do a new. I saw a new story on Walmart doing drone drop-offs in the Arkansas area already. And there's a little kid that's already used to it. He's two years old. He goes to the backyard, picks up the package, and brings it back into his mom. Right. Think about all the porch pirates now that's got to go into the backyard. <laughs> right into the backyard. Try to do that shit in the South. You're going to get shot. You're going to get blown to pieces. Right? Like someone steps into someone's backyard in Texas or Georgia. <laughs> yeah, that's that'll be a that'll be a very uh, dangerous situation. That says a great conversation. Really fun to see Helen Patton on with the crew today. I'm excited for her book to arrive on my doorstep. Me too. I'm excited. I am excited. So thinking about like future states, Helen, um, how do you see, what are some of the things that, that you would suggest for kind of improving or breaking down um, the hiring pipeline to try to have hiring managers, recruiters kind of open that up to have, to look at the more diamonds in the rough um, applicants and, and find those that have the competencies and the passion versus mm -hmm. those that just have the list of papers of certifications and education, but might not really know or really want to have the passion to, to solve the problem. Yeah, I think I'm actually sort of excited. I think one of the positives coming out of COVID and some of the stuff we've seen for all the burnout problems and things that we just talked about, um, 
I actually think, and Renee will tell me I'm just full of it by saying this, but I, I think our recruiters, our HR partners are being forced to be flexible in ways that they haven't before. And I think that gives the cybersecurity community an opening to ask them to be flexible around cybersecurity stuff as well. I think we have hiring managers who write job descriptions asking for stuff they don't need because they've done that in the past and they haven't really been forced to, to do it any differently. And I think now is a great time for us to be training our managers, our hiring managers, our people who will be managers on how to write a good job description that doesn't gatekeep. And I think we're also being forced to go look for, for resources, not just in security, but everywhere. We're, we're being forced to go look in places that we didn't go look for before. So getting creative in terms of where we're posting our job descriptions and our job postings and how we're using social media to reach out to communities we may not have reached out to before and being able to source from locations that we weren't able to source from before. I think we'll actually go a long way in terms of breaking down some of those hiring barriers that we've seen. I think the bigger challenge, and this goes back to James's point around burnout, I think is we've also got to train our managers on how to foster inclusion in the workplace when the workplace is at home um, so that people stay because people will still leave if it's a shitty job, right? So I had a colleague who said, I'm burning out, but I don't know if it's I'm burning out because of the job or because of the work. And what she was getting at is she wasn't sure whether it was the day-to-day -day tasking of the job that was getting her down or the environment she was working in that was getting her down. And I think people, a lot more people are going to be asking those questions. Am I burning out because of where I'm sitting or who I'm working with or what the culture is in the organization? Or am I burning out because I've done this same SOC analyst work stuff for the last two years and I'm done with that and I want something different now? So I think, you know, we're, we're going to have lots of options available to us as employees. So managers are going to have to get better at what they do to retain. And, um, and I, I think the future is bright, actually, on that one. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think, go ahead, Renee. No, I think, Helen, you made some amazing points. Um, and I agree. I think, I think, I think managers and recruiters and everyone has been forced like, to, to look at reality because if it's working, right, then we're fine. But when mm -hmm. it's not working or you're getting, you know, all the people that you're interested in are turning you down. Um, then you're forced to make a decision. So mm -hmm. what, you know, what is that decision going to be? Are you going to continue to play this game of, hey, this is what we want and we're sticking to it and you, your position's open for a year and a half? Or do you flex to the market? Um, and so I, I definitely agree with your points in terms of like the flexibility, the job descriptions. I mean, we have run and joke all over LinkedIn, we've seen these crazy job descriptions where they're asking for an arm and a leg. Um, and even last week when we had Jules on, we were talking about what, you know, just hiring entry level. And I think right before we started, I said, you know, I'm working with this one company, you know, everything out, not, not everything outside of security, but they were, it's all a bunch of tech roles, software engineer, you know, junior software engineers, junior um, QA, just junior folks. And it, they went to colleges 
plucked 10 college grads, zero experience, you know, paid them somewhere between 90 and whatever the number was. And that was it. Like that's, and that's how it's always been in my world of tech recruiting. That's mm-hmm. why the security thing is always fascinating. Like, what are you talking about? People are not supposed to have this level of experience. They are these the the folks that I just extended, I don't know, 10 offers to, they all are graduating in December. They're graduating in June, you know? Mm-hmm. So I agree. I think there's just gonna be this opening um, because we're not gonna have a choice. Like I so I have a, my own soapbox and it's not about Teslas and it's not about liberal arts education, but I do, I have a soapbox. I actually don't think that there is such thing as an entry-level cybersecurity job. I think the term entry-level cybersecurity is a contradiction and it, it doesn't mean there aren't jobs for people who've never been in cybersecurity for, before to get into, but I think to be able to do cybersecurity, you need to have experience either working in a business or or having worked with technology or preferably both before you be, before you roll into a cybersecurity job. And so I get that I think there are hiring managers when they write those really crappy job descriptions. What they're asking for, they're saying it's an entry-level cybersecurity job because it, they're willing to take someone who hasn't worked in cybersecurity before, but they also want someone with business or IT experience first. And so you get these entry-level jobs with requiring 10 years of experience or whatever, which is probably overkill, don't get me wrong. But I just don't, I, I can't think of a job role where it would be really great for someone to come in with absolutely no other business background at all. Now, having said that, I think you can do it, but I wouldn't call it a cybersecurity job if you did it. I, let's let's call it, you know, a, a, a service level job or an analyst level job, but it but it's not a cybersecurity job in the beginning. So that's my soapbox moment. I to me, cybersecurity requires like if you're going to tell somebody that they screwed up their configuration of the technology thing, a, an S3 bucket, or a database or how they've configured their identity management system, or if you're going to tell them this is a framework that you've got to do your IT in, you've probably got to have understood how that stuff works before you start bossing other people around. And that takes a little bit of seniority to do that. So I I think... No, go ahead, Chris, go ahead. I I like the caveat of the analyst part, because I think becoming an analyst in a certain role like... Uh, GRC or um, even like cloud allows you to come in with that junior type uh, level and get a better understanding for working for it. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that leveling up. I definitely agree that the analyst would be the closest thing to the junior level or quote unquote entry level roles. Yeah. Right. Go ahead, Renee. Well, we have, um, I have a Less hard than a <laughs> Today, unfortunately, I would love to get more into this, Helen, because I slightly disagree, or I I, I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) I disagree. I think there's opportunity, um, you know, outside of brain surgery and a few other things for entry level, whatever, for roles to be broken all the way down into little bits and pieces. And yes, that person shouldn't be have the keys to the castle. 
but training people at a at a relatively entry level, um, you know, people from at, at the very bottom, you know, and getting them in and training them from college because PwC, you know, a lot of companies are doing just that. Um, so I want to thank you so, so much for being here today. You are amazing. We all will be uh, reading and sharing and posting about your book um, so that we can learn more about everything that's in it. Thank you all so, so much for being here today. Helen, Chris, James, Baby Siso, and um, of course, our all of the guests that come on, all the whole entire audience, Dutch, um, whole cyber human initiative. <laughs> I have to say the full name. Everybody that's on making comments. Thank you so, so much for being here, Zoe, everybody else. Um, and we will see everyone next Thursday, right? 1 p.m. Eastern. Bye, yeah. everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.